Let's uh, <clears throat> that time for us to delve into the Word of God and go deep into the book of Galatians, as we really do every week. And I'm excited to, to look at verses um, 8 to 11 with you this morning. We're in chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, so you find your way there. Also, we have published in the bulletin an outline just to make things a bit easier for you to follow. While you're turning, I would have... Um, we have some questions kind of posed in our minds. Does a professing Christian become an apostate when he starts speaking and acting like one? Or, or is it possible to sound and act like an apostate without actually being one? Now, generally speaking, genuine Christians at times can look very much like unbelievers in some of their most sinful moments, but that doesn't mean that they are. And if that's the case, then yes, they can also look very much like an apostate while not actually being one. You remember Jesus called Peter Satan. And he was not saying that Peter was the embodiment of evil or possessed by Satan, but that Peter's goal at that very moment was a, a fit perfectly with Satan's agenda, which was to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Paul also told an entire church in Ephesus uh, Ephesians 4.17, to stop walking like unbelievers, an entire church. How about that? An entire church resembling a secular group because of their habitual and life-dominating sins. It is possible and even likely that believers will at times make outlandish statements, believe erroneous teaching, and act in ways that would resemble an, an, an apostate while not themselves being apostate he's just backslidden okay fair enough but that begs the next question how long how long can a professing christian backslide into apostasy or apostate like activity before it becomes obvious that he actually is an apostate now that question seems to be more difficult to answer for example, we know that John tells us in no uncertain terms in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, no one has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him. Practicing is the key word there, right? We Christians are going to sin. In fact, John even anticipates that and gives us 1 John 1, 9. He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sin. Now, it would appear then that there is a line between sinning and practicing a sinful lifestyle. But it's still hard to be sure when a professing believer has crossed it. Well, we cannot mean, on the, on the one hand, a, a Christian who struggles with a life-dominating sin, hates it, has sorrow over committing it that leads to repentance whenever he gives into it, avoids tempting situations, and wants to know how never to sin the same sin over again, that this person is not a believer, he very much is. In fact, if he weren't struggling, we would have cause to be suspicious. But then on the other hand, if he enjoys his time in the wasteland, clings to error, becomes zealous about the wrong things and refuses to to see his error after being corrected, we might be inclined to see him as an apostate. But even in that instance, we hold out hope and we pray that this is 
no more than a season of rebellion. And we we're back at the same nagging question. How long can a believer remain in his backslidden position before it turns into a lifestyle? What is that point of no return where his heart becomes so hardened to the truth that in his rejection of sound doctrine, we, we are, in the words of Hebrews 6, 6, unable really to restore him again unto repentance. That's a difficult question to answer because every situation is different. Every heart is different. All the more, all the more reason why, since we can only make functional judgments about the attitudes and behavior, we need to proceed with caution. Jesus tells us at the end of a church discipline trial, Matthew 18, verse 19, that the church must treat a sinning member who has gone through the entire process as an unbeliever and remove him from membership. We don't, of course, allow unbelievers to hold membership in the church. That's why. If this guy insists on acting like an unbeliever, well, then we'll treat him like one. But please observe, Jesus does not say that we declare this person to be an unbeliever. What's the difference between treating a professing Christian like an unbeliever and declaring him to be one? Wouldn't we still treat the person the same in both both cases? Well, yes, we would. But if we know that we're dealing with a wayward brother, then our ministry to him comes with greater hope. Listen to Paul's instruction in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The don't associate really is a reference to the fourth stage or third and fourth stages of church discipline. Understanding him to be a wayward Christian then extends hope to both him and us. A believer who is steeped in a sinful practice can easily turn it around by repenting for starters. And this is the great difference between believers and and unbelievers. Believers know what to do with their sin. Considering him to be a wayward brother and not an enemy of of the cross is also an admission on our part that we're not God and we cannot know the heart of another individual. Treating him like an unbeliever while not declaring him to be so is not hypocritical. It is treating him as his actions deserve, which is why we start preaching the gospel to him at the fourth stage of church discipline. And finally, considering him to be a wayward brother is a sobering admission that believers can indeed get to this disappointing and dangerous stage. Perhaps the answer to the how long question is that it's really not the right question to ask. Now, I'm not punting here. Why do I say that? Why is it the wrong question to ask? Because asking how long oftentimes reveals or cultivates an attitude that really facilitates backsliding rather than counteracts it. How so? Well, if the church thinks that backsliding can continue for a long time before there is repentance, they might be tempted to ease up on their responsibility to pursue the wayward brother. Well, we're not so concerned about Bill. He's a Christian, and and Christians can exist in that condition for years before they finally turn around. 
And then there's the backslider himself, who, if he thinks this is true, uh, this is true, he will enjoy his sin maybe a little while longer. Yeah. Now, the right question to ask is not how long can a Christian backslide, but does the backslider love Christ enough to stop his sinning and obey the Word? That's the question we need to ask. In this case, Bill himself. Do you love Christ? Do you love Christ enough to stop? If the answer is yes, then then he will be accepting of our help. And that question brings up one final one that we should raise. And that is, how should we, the church, can minister to a backslider? What is our responsibility? Well, that depends on which stage of his descent he's at. Some give hints right away that they're facing a wrong direction, that they're not thinking biblically, or or they have oriented themselves in a direction of the apostate, which would simply deserve maybe a mild correction. Judy, it, it actually is not true that as long as people are good, they don't need the gospel. That, that's not true. You, you should know that. No one is good, not one. Remember, works cannot save. Others have taken the first step in the direction of apostasy. They're not merely facing the direction, but they've taken a a few steps toward it, and they start behaving contrary to their confession. This is what Psalm 1 verse 1 calls walking in the path of sinners. They would need correction that elicits repentance and, and maybe move back in the right direction, fill this teaching of uh, this this teaching you're trusting that that comes from that bible teacher on tv is incorrect it actually denies the sufficiency of god's word and it is quite heretical and dangerous you need to turn from it still others have become quite settled in the direction of apostasy and they are championing heresy which is what psalm 11 calls standing in the way of sinners They've snuck in, or they've snuck under the radar of leadership somehow, and have reached the point in their progression of compromise that is really a, a serious condition. We would call them to repent of heresy, embrace orthodoxy, and train them in righteous thinking and living. Jack and Nancy, what you're spend, what you're spreading around the church is is error. Plain and simple, we've talked to you about it already, and it is our last warning to you. You need to stop and let us help you implement sound doctrine in your life so you will be spiritually healthy. Sadly, some in this condition don't stop. Heresy has worked for them. It's helped them. They see it as God's truth, and they will begin to actually mock orthodoxy. That's what Psalm 1 1 calls those who sit in the seat of scoffers. At that point, they deserve disciplinary action that calls them back to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. Now, in all of these instances, beloved, and any and all movement of the backslider toward error is met, and it should be met with a word of, of warning from concerned and loving brothers and sisters of the local assembly that such thinking 
and orientation is, is on par with the apostate and that they should never want to go in that direction. And maybe you think that bringing up the apostate card is in the first three scenarios would be a bit extreme and maybe even premature. I can see challenging someone's confession of faith if church discipline is warranted, but to tell someone that is thinking and actions are no different than those of an apostate, especially if they're if they're said if they're said and done out of ignorance, well, it's a bit much, don't you think? Well, hold on. My examples my examples have to do specifically with doctrinal issues. You see, a fair amount of sinning takes place on interpersonal levels where one believer offends another believer. And in that case, there needs to be rebuke given, forgiveness asked, forgiveness granted. That's Luke 17. And according to what Jesus says there in Luke 17, verse 3, it's that simple. No need to accuse your offender of acting like an apostate and warning him. But when believers get entangled in dangerous heresies, that's a different matter. One example which has been on our radar for years now is the woke church. Some sound churches that lack discernment have bought into woke ideology, critical race theory, even seeing white supremacy thriving in churches that are not multicultural. Now, if we should ever see such heresy here, our response should be gentle, caring, but swift and deliberate, as deliberate as we are about our own health. How likely are you to let a lump on your body remain before you get it checked out by a doctor? could be cancer. Well, in most cases, it's not. But you always think the worst, don't you? Well, we should treat the member in the church who has latched onto heresy the same way. He could turn out to be apostate. So we need to address it now for his benefit and out of love. You see the difference between these simple situations? One has to do with breaking God's word. The other has to do with reinterpreting it. And making it something completely different. And that is the work of an apostate. Now Galatians chapter 4 is an exam- a great example of this second case. We have church folk drifting toward apostasy, unaware. And Paul's handling of it is, our, is a model for us. We're in verses 8 to, t- to 11, where the train of thought has now changed. Since chapter uh, 1, verse 6, Paul's been leveling arguments against the Judaizers' gospel of works and for his gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. He brings that long section of argumentation to a close in chapter 4, verse 7. It's a long one. And before he takes up another direction, he caps off his previous argumentation with a personal pastoral appeal to Galatians or Galatian believers, he speaks personally and directly of his concern for them. And we get a good glimpse of the apostle's heart for the backslider. And keep in mind, he assumes that the Galatians are truly born again. And we've already argued that way back in our introduction. He has no reason yet to believe that they are really, truly apostate. But you might get the impression or the opposite idea by reading verses 8 to 11 that Paul thinks they are. His appeal is strong, and it could be applied to a dissenter from orthodoxy at any point in his dissent. Is Paul overreacting? 
Is he over the top in his appeal? Is he driving in thumbtacks with a sledgehammer? As I pointed out, with sins of this nature, I don't think that you can ever be too strong. Let's see how it works out. First of all, Paul argues in verses 8 and 9 that before conversion to Christ, we were all idolaters, every one of us. After laying out sound doctrinal arguments, Paul reminds them of their life before Christ. Why is that important? Because that's the direction that they're, that they're facing now. Paul reminds them that it was what it was like, what, what they were delivered from. He says in verses 8 and 9, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. He speaks of their pre-converted state with the words, at that time when you did not know God. What about that time? What was different? Different, of course, for unconverted Jews than for unconverted Gentiles. Unbelieving Jews misinterpreted the law and saw it as a means of justification, right? Just as the Judaizers were now doing. The Gentiles, however, well, they didn't have the law, right? They worship, their worship was pagan. And Paul says of them, you were slaves to those which by nature are not gods. Gentile pagan worship had their own gods. In the spirit of Romans 1, they essentially worshiped the creation, instead of the creator, with their sun and moon and sea gods. And Paul tells them that these really were not gods at all. There's only one true God, and everything else is his handiwork. And the bottom line is that whatever pagans worshipped amounted to pure idolatry, plain and simple. As I hope to show, even unbelieving Jews were guilty of idolatry by abusing God's law. And using it as their means of justification, we could say that they worship the law instead of the, the, the work of the future work of Messiah whom the law pointed to. Now, any worldview, ideology, religion, yes, even Judaism, is nothing more than idolatry because it worships the wrong God. And if Jesus happens to be in the equation, well, then they worship the false Jesus. At this juncture, I, I don't want you to miss Paul's point. He says, we're hardcore idolaters. That's what we used to be. In fact, the Old Testament actually reserves the word idolater for unbelievers, for people outside the covenant of God. Believers are never given this label because they were, as Isaiah uses his terminology, healed by Christ, which is the terminology Jesus uses in the Gospel of Mark to talk about salvation. The Galatians had embarked on a direction of idolatry, paganism, apostasy. That's where they were pointed. That's where they were heading. And what Paul implies here is noteworthy. Whenever a Christian engages in heresy, he's now pointing himself in the way of an apostate. His goals fit with the apostate's agenda, whether he knows it or not. And we would do well to confront the believer engaged in some kind of heresy by pointing, him, pointing this out to him. And that should be the case because he's not an apostate. We might even say to him, no, Bill, only apostates don't hold to such things. And you're not one of them, so don't even go there. Why would you ever go back there? What can idolatry give you that, that Christ cannot? 
Paul's appeal here in verses 8 to 11 gives us a biblical precedent for challenging a backslider. Number two, the one whom Christ has truly set free never goes back to idolatry. Never. And that's in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, the phrase by now, or but now rather, contrasts what the Galatians were before and after their conversion. They were idolatrous people who had been saved to worship the one true God. Paul identified them as sons of God back in chapter 3, verse 26, who had been given the spirit of the Son, chapter 4, verse 6. Now, just so that there's no mistake, Paul thought it important to clarify that if their coming to know God in, in the conversion experience was real, it was really God's doing. I love how he just sneaks this in here. Just for clarity purposes, it is not that we took the initiative to seek God out, right? In Romans 3, Paul would quote Psalm 14 and say that there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's a pretty harsh indictment on humanity from the psalmist. (laughs) God is the one that seeks us out and he sought you and he bought you and he gave you new life. I like Richard Longnecker's uh, comment here in his commentary at this point. He says, quote, relationship with God does not have its basis in man's seeking, parenthesis, mysticism, or doing, parenthesis, legalism, or knowing, parenthesis, Gnosticism, but it originates with God himself, and it is carried on always by divine grace. Now, see how Paul ministers in his appeal at this moment. He rehearsed with the Galatians the awful condition of idolatry that they came out of, a condition obviously that God condemns, and then how God found them there, bought them out of that for his own purposes, and they came to know him intimately. Paul's drawing a picture of their conversion. It's the the general testimony of everyone. We were all idolaters, but now we are sons of God and daughters. Mm. Maybe we are not too far off to suppose that at this point, in their hearing of this read to them in the assembly at Galatia, a few, if not most, were probably giving amens as a response to this. We're safe in believing that Paul intentionally sets them up here with a with a great contrasting truth. Once I was estranged to God. Oh, yes. I was an idolater at heart. Yes, amen. And then God found me out and saved me. Amen. So that he could hit them right between the eyes with the next sobering question that no doubt was meant to stun. How is it that you turn back? to the weak and worthless elementary principles to which you want to be enslaved all over again? How do you even answer that question? This question is reminiscent of Paul's question to Peter, remember? It's a rhetorical one that puts people's backs against the wall by forcing them to accept certain presuppositions. We might call it a loaded question. 
In this case, what the Galatians desire to turn back to is enslavement, pure and simple. Paul's question also suggests that this turning is not natural either, quite out of step with godliness. If you've come to know intimacy with Father, with the Father by Christ and the Spirit, how could you possibly want any other relationship? The idea is, is that even possible? In fact, was that not even settled at conversion? The very gospel challenged or that that came from Jesus' lips, I should say challenged people that if he does not come first before all other relationships then the follower is not worthy of him. Remember Matthew 10, 30 to 33. Now here's an important observation. The word Paul uses here translated turn around or turn back. It's a technical term in the New Testament for conversion. But it's also technical for apostatizing. So you're turning one or the other direction. There could be no question that upon hearing Paul's question here, that the Galatians got the message loud and clear and probably concluded, Paul believes that we are in the process of apostatizing. Mm -hmm. And a word of clarification here, the idolatrous context that the Judaizers were leading the Galatians back into, it wasn't their original pagan context. It was rather a new context that was just as idolatrous. The Judaizers were pushing the Galatians, as you may remember, to observe the law in order to be justified and maintain their salvation. you got to adhere to the law. That's where they were pushing them. Paul says that is no better and no different than their former idolatrous life as pagans. The Gentile who had turned from the weak and worthless elementary principles of their own pagan religions do themselves no favor by turning to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the law. There's no question that Paul has in mind adherence to the Levitical Code, the law under the Old Covenant, according to verse 10. You meticulously observe days and months and seasons and years. This verse is an expansion of the weak and miserable basic principles mentioned back in verse 9. Now, without getting too technical, suffice it to say that what Paul refers to here is the Jewish calendar, the religious calendar with all its holy days and months and years and sacred events. And the grammar of verse 10, you meticulously observe, present tense, shows that the Galatians started observing the Jewish calendar already. They faced the direction of apostasy and they took a few steps. Now, according to chapter 5, verse 2, they hadn't been circumcised yet. But that would have been the next thing on the list to do. Paul's lumping paganism and the law together this way, by the way, to to show that it, it really all amounts to idolatry. That was a radical idea for the Judaizers. They would have bristled against that. Because they believe that adherence to the law would protect the Gentiles from any, from any temptation to drift back into pagan thought and action. But as far as Paul is concerned, anything that would take away from the truth of total reliance upon Christ alone for salvation and godliness is anathema. James Boyce makes the point that Satan can use even the law when it is distorted to increase man's bondage. 
Is Paul being too strong? Is he over, overreacting? Does he give too much emotion to this context? Is he driving in thumbtacks with a sledgehammer? Not at all. Paul already stated so boldly in chapter 1 that if this false gospel is anathema, then so are those who preach it, remember. It was heresy, and heresy destroys. And what made matters worse, we can be sure that the Galatians did not understand that placing themselves under the law was enslaving themselves under weak and miserable principles. They were blissfully ignorant of their descent into apostasy. Paul needed to educate them and sober them up to the truth. That brings us to verse 11 in the third truth that Paul mentions, we have just cause to fear for professing Christians who exhibit apostate-like actions and to tell them so in hopes of turning them around. Paul says, verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. According to the grammar of this verse, their descent into heresy had begun, but the end result had yet to be determined. So Paul expresses his great fear of of them, uh, of what could happen to them, rather, if they don't listen to him. And his fear is legitimate. And we shouldn't hesitate to tell professing believers, beloved, who are facing or faced this direction of apostasy, that we have good reason to fear for them. Whether a professor is genuinely born again or not, and simply close to conversion, the problems he faces if he is not corrected immediately are huge. They just magnify exponentially. In the case of a believer, he could begin to to operate on heresy and eventually shipwreck his faith. In fact, he could even die. Since sinful thinking that leads to sinful behavior will lead to death if it's not addressed. Physical death, of course, for the believer. It's a logical and natural consequence of sinful behavior. Even the sincerest of believers can face physical death. Sin is sin, and the wages of it leads to death. James, in fact, alludes to this in his epistle in chapter 5, verse 15. He says, brothers and sisters, if any, any among you strays from the truth and, and somehow turns him back, let him know that the one that he has turned a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a great, what a great statement that is. James calls us to turn a backslider to the church, in in the church, around. For in so doing, we will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That is, we have kept him from the logical outcome of his actions if left to develop, that is, physical death. And it's clear that James is talking about physical death since he just spoke back in verse 15 of that chapter about a sick believer who, apart from repentance, may die. So we preserve our brother and our, or our sister from all kinds of terrible consequences when we deliver him or her from backsliding into heresy. And for the one who is thinking of trusting Christ, right on the verge of conversion, we would take our cue from the writer to the Hebrews, whose letter has, has to do in great part with calling such gospel candidates to obey the voice of God 
and not and 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 not turn from what they have come to know to be true about the gospel because it's impossible to be renewed again unto repentance. Logical consequence for them is not only physical death but spiritual death as well. Well, in addition, in turning a back or turning back a backslider or also an unbeliever on the verge of conversion who's begun to have second thoughts, we see that if we are successful, we give the great word of confirmation to both. God has forgiven you. And that's a great moment for both of us. That's the greatest reward any counselor can receive for his labor in the rescue mission. And so, beloved, when when it comes to backsliders who have lost their footing in orthodoxy, you can see why we have every right to fear for them. And we should. We shouldn't hesitate to tell them that we have labored long and hard with them, and we hope that our labor is not in vain. And we see no evidence of them regaining their spiritual footing. It's a great way to wake them up. Well, to bring this... To a close, we might ask what kind of application do we pull from this text where the Galatians' departure into Judaism and adopting a false gospel had begun, but with the final results still left up in the air. And I think the short answer is that we have great responsibility. That's the applicational part of this. And I'll I'll give it to you in maybe four four different ways or four different truths or four different steps. Think of them as however you'd like. Number one, we must be as diligent as possible to rein the backslider in. Diligent. We have a clear precedent from James and clear warning from Paul here of the logical results of such a trajectory toward apostasy. It's a rescue mission. And and it's the most loving thing that we can do for a believer in this situation. Is this not the Lord's way? Does he not discipline us because he loves us? Does he not promise to finish in us what he began? And will he not do whatever he deems necessary to make us like his son, whether we like it or not? In fact, the Lord gives us church discipline for the very purpose, to restore, right? For members of the local church who refuse to repent, church discipline is really our only recourse. I've been talking specifically about backsliding members of the local church, but there are plenty of instances of Christian friends, maybe extended family or acquaintances who are backslidden. Maybe maybe you've had the opportunity to, to meet all of those recently or in the past, distant past. What's our responsibility to them? It's certainly to pursue them and meet with them as long as it takes to turn them around. Just know that if they refuse to listen, there's not much that we can do because we're, we're, they're not part of, of our local church, right? They are not subject to church discipline. If they are members of another church, well, then we could notify their leadership with the hope that that leadership would follow through with church discipline if necessary, but you'd be surprised how many won't. If they are not members anywhere, then the most that we can do is to put them on hold. That is, that we stop laboring with them until they mean business, 
It's a gross misuse of our time to strive with those who refuse to listen. Are you giving up on them? No, not at all. We are using the time that the Lord gave us wisely by putting the onus or burden to get right squarely on their shoulders. Let me give you an illustration that might help clarify this. There are plenty of people who come to Pilgrim Reform Counseling Ministries, as you know, and they come in a backslidden state who, after hours of counsel, show that they don't really mean business yet. And they don't do the homework that we give them or listen to the biblical counsel that we give them. And still they complain about their problems. So we let them know clearly that our counseling session is really a waste of each other's time. The counseling is not going to work if they're not going to apply God's word to their situation. And that we have plenty of other hurting people waiting in the wings for counseling. <coughs> so we're not cutting ties with them. It's important to understand that. Rather, we put them on hold. We let them know that our door is always open and we are so eager to get back to it with them. And we tell them, when you're serious for Christ and you do the homework, call us right away and we'll set up an appointment. Number two, apostasy, as sad as it is, is one of the ways the Lord identifies his own. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, Paul says, for there also have to be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The only God has sway over the human heart, not us. And in those tragic instances, instances where those we strive after do eventually apostatize, we need to remember that there is a positive sense here in which this is God's way also of purging the church and exposing those among us who are genuine. Number three, we should never think that we are beyond falling away and ignoring God's warning in Scripture. But I'm a Christian. I, I, can't, I can't fall away. I believe in eternal security. Well, we're not denying the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Rather, we are confirming it when we say that God has not only determined his elect, but the means by which he will bring them to glory. And one of those means is perseverance. Having said that, those who are truly born again will persevere. And they will take the warning seriously. And they will avoid any and all attitudes and actions that are in line with the apostate. Having said that, let me say this. If you are backslidden. Repent immediately and seek out help from godly shepherds to get you back in the race running well. And be as patient as you are diligent in restoring the joy of the Lord. Emotions are not the validation of sincere, obedient faith. They are the product of it, and it will eventually come. But it may not come right away. Listen to the Westminster Larger Catechism at this point. You'll have to pardon the old English here. Quote, those who do not yet experience a lively faith in Christ, an assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, and earnest endeavor after filial obedience, and glorifying in God through Christ, effectu effectuously wrought in them, 
and do nevertheless persist in the use of the means which God hath appointed for working these graces in us, ought not to be alarmed at the mention of apostasy, nor rank themselves among apostates, but diligently to persevere in the use of means and will ardent and and with ardent desire devoutly and humbly to wait for a season of richer grace. Much less cause have they to be terrified by the doctrine of repro reprobation, who though they seriously desire to be turned to God to please him only and to be delivered from the body of death cannot cannot yet reach that measure of holiness and faith to which they aspire, since a merciful God has promised that he will not quench the smoking flax or break the bruised reed, end quote. Keep fighting the good fight, regardless of how you feel. Keep availing yourselves of the doctrines of grace, and that season of richer grace will come. It will. And should there be any unbelieving hearts on the verge of conversion that is pulled in the direction of apostasy, resist the urge. Don't delay in trusting Christ. Don't say, ah, there's time enough for me to commit to him later. The longer you delay, the more ch chance there is of your heart becoming hardened beyond repentance. The rest of the catechism that we just read says this to you, but this doctrine is just justly terrible to those who, regardless of God and of the Savior Jesus Christ, have wholly given themselves up to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh so long as they are not seriously converted to God. Oh, beloved, may God grant us all discernment and wisdom in our rescue mission of backsliders. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word, which has come to us through your mouth, through the writing of the apostles and prophets, down, preserved down through the centuries to wind up in our hands, that we might read these very verses to encourage us in the way, to prepare ourselves to minister to those who are in need, who are weak in their faith and need to be encouraged, and also for those who are contemplating trusting Christ that we might that we might lead them and direct them appropriately father we thank you that you love us that you died for us and that you gave us your son and because of that you will not withhold any good thing from us of lesser significance and we're grateful that we have you in our corner that we have nothing to fear and that when you are for us, nothing can be against us. Oh God, we do pray that we would, we would minister to ourselves with these great thoughts as we continue to run the race in these last days where things continue to go from bad to worse. For your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.